is a Boardwalk Audio podcast. The Meat Improv! It's me, Jake Jabor. And I'm reading a chapter from a book I wrote called Training to Be Myself that you can pre-order at inkshares.com, search Jake Jabor, or Training to Be Myself. Uh, This chapter is um, day one. And just a heads up, there is explicit content in language. So uh, if you're an adult or a youth who is squeamish about that, uh, be forewarned. And if you're a cool adult or a cool youth, welcome to the party, pal. Day one, Maricopa. Population, Audi test drivers, Manifest Destineers, and Pamela Anderson. This trip is not messing around. Our first leg of the trip is seven hours. I would love to regale you with a beautifully constructed paragraph detailing the interior of the Amtrak car, the passengers with their distinct characteristics, and the gray-haired wise train conductor with a silver pocket watch given to him by his grandmother, the first female lead conductor. But I can't, because I am asleep. From all aboard, I am all snores. I have always been a good sleeper. As a youngster, just put me in a car, or really any cushioned seat, and I'm out before the ignition turns over. It made me a great travel companion, or at least an easy one. As I grew older, it made me a less-than-great travel companion, or at least an unhelpful one. When people travel with partners, they do so to share the experience, share the work of navigating, in short, to experience the act of sharing. But I am not a sharing vagabond. I am a thief, robbing my partners of their companionship in the middle of my night-night. It's my cross to hibernating bear. People notice it less when the trip is good, but when the trip is bad, people want company for their misery. So Josh and I are off to a rocky start because this first leg was bad. So I'm told. I wouldn't know. I slept great. Josh, however, was kept up not only by the sliding door they seated us next to, but by the smell of the bathroom and the incoherent chatter of our train mates. But not me. In 2008, I accompanied my sister Michelle to India to adopt a child. Well, she was adopting. I was co-adopting. Actually, that's been pretty gracious. I was there. On the plane trip back, her new daughter, my niece, got a fever of 104 and I slept through my sister's natural and expected panic as she contemplated having the plane land somewhere in Russia. My hibernating abandonment likely upset her, although she never said so explicitly because her kindness is boundless. I would have liked to have been a better brother. It pains me I wasn't, but I was at the mercy of too many sleep agents. Besides the soothing rhythms of transportation I'd come to know so well, stress is a natural ambient for me. I've exited many arguments by lying down and dozing off, only to wake up to my opponent still seething. My niece would need emergency surgery when we landed in L.A. It was not an easy journey, and my sister and niece braved the worst of it. But everything settled into their comfortable place, and they are living their best lives in Northern California. I have always felt that I let my sister down, and now I am letting my friend down, because he went to a lot of trouble to plan this trip with his best friend. But, instead, he's pinned awake on this red-eye train to Arizona with a 200-pound baby. I'm sorry, Josh. If my ailing niece couldn't keep me awake, you never stood a chance. Good baby, bad co-pilot. We pull up to Maricopa, Arizona a little before 8 a.m. It is a small reservation with a remodeled Harris Casino as its biggest landmark. Arizona doesn't subscribe to daylight savings, and so it feels appropriate that when I wake up, I feel stuck out of time. 
like a miner heading west hoping to strike it rich. I stood on a train platform and kissed the woman I loved goodbye and set my sights on a new frontier. Unlike a miner, I have no delusions about the fortune I will not find. And I'll probably eat better. And be much safer. So, aside from the certainty for healthy arrival, the relative comfort, hot meals, and lack of any real risk or fatal disease or bear attack, I'm just like my ancestors, forging ahead and pursuing my manifest destiny. If my forefathers lived the revenant, then I'm living the revenant when it comes on TNT and all the violence is edited out and it's routinely interrupted with commercial breaks for cheeseburgers. Anthony leads our manifest destiny. He is our first Lyft driver of the trip, and he is driving us from Maricopa to Phoenix. I do not know how we could do this trip without ride-sharing. I can't imagine figuring out how to get a cab out to a distant and desolate Amtrak station at 8 a.m. in the middle of a near desert and taking us to Phoenix without it costing us $200. Ride-sharing is awful, but it makes life easier. Besides driving for Lyft, Anthony test-drives VWs and Audis. He owns two cars and has been to Japan. Anyone who thinks ride-sharing perpetuates a class system never met Anthony. Over the course of this trip, it will be the ride-sharing experience that most exemplifies the contrast between the coasts and middle America. Josh and I arrive at our Airbnb, a quaint one-bedroom apartment, and we immediately take space from one another. Josh in the bedroom, me in the living room, and we fall asleep. We nap before going to teach a workshop at noon. I doze off thinking if I should move to Maricopa to test drive automobiles. When I wake up, I look up the improv theater we are teaching at, the Torch Theater, and learn it's only a mile away, so Josh and I stretch our train legs. This is an immediate mistake. It is 100 degrees outside, and I feel every drop of mercury in the thermometer. On the walk, I am struck by how modern Phoenix feels. There are lots of gastropubs and cantinas that promise happy hour cocktails and sliders on their sandwich boards. It seems every town in America is hip now. I bet it rules to be a teenager. I suppose it always did, minus the raging hormones, being surrounded by other teenagers, and the lack of autonomy. But I can't imagine growing up with access to sweet potato fries, a practically limitless library of stand-up specials, an actual limitless music catalog, and somewhat easier access to quality marijuana. I suppose the only upside my generation had was Playboy's showed vaginas. Although with the internet, the vagina has become as exotic as earlobes. They're not always on display, but there is certainly no mystery as to what they look like. I suspect the youngest generation's relation to pornography will soon mirror my generation's relationship to junk food in the same way my parents' relationship to drugs and alcohol was much more casual than my own. To hear my parents talk about it, or to watch it on Mad Men, everyone was a little drunk all the time, and usually driving too, often to get more drunk. And cocaine was pretty much on the food pyramid in the 80s. More rational heads eventually prevailed, and now having a nooner, or a road soda, is frowned upon, and coke is mostly seen as something people do to slip into another decade of their life. Teenagers do it to feel in their 20s. People in their 20s do it to feel like they're in their 30s. People in their 30s do it to feel in their 20s. And people in their 40s do it because they're pathetic. My generation missed those days of drinking and driving, but we sidled up to the table for Happy Meals, Surge as a beverage, and candy that was chemically closer to plastic toys than food. Remember Fun Dip and Dunkaroos and Gushers? packed in our brown bags for lunch in place of something that required photosynthesis to exist. Now kids eat apples and dried seaweed for snacks. Soda's been replaced with coconut water, and I suspect the same will be true for the internet. No one wants to censor it, but I wouldn't be surprised if adult erectile dysfunction doesn't hit us the way diabetes has. Maybe it's not such a bad thing to limit what people, especially growing minds and libidos, have access to. 
I used to masturbate to pictures of Britney Spears and Rolling Stone. She was in an outfit that revealed her midriff. Now using that image for arousal would probably qualify me as a carnival attraction. Come watch the man turned on by nothing more than bare breasts. Freak, freak, they'd yell. Ah, to be young again. The last time I stayed in Phoenix was with my aunt on a road trip to California. My aunt doesn't drive out of state lines alone. She was coming to California from Albuquerque, so my mom asked if I would drive with her. I agreed, and after an unremarkable two-hour flight from LAX to Santa Fe, I was in the car with my aunt headed back to California. We stopped at a Burger King, and my aunt, who I guess has not eaten at a fast food chain since America discovered large as relative, ordered a large root beer, no ice. The gallon of barks tested the strength of the plastic cup and my aunt's forearm as she hoisted it into the car. She talked about going to see Caesar Milan, the dog whisperer, at a casino on a reservation and loving it. My aunt used to train dogs, so it's pretty cool to think that there was a famous dog trainer she could go see. There's a celebrity for everything. The rest of the country is slowly catching up with Los Angeles. When people ask what I like about L.A., I say it has so much variety and diversity you can really laser focus your niche proclivities. Not only do they have long-form improv, they have three theaters with different philosophies. You don't have to settle for the only place in town that serves ramen. You can go to the one with lobster, or fried tofu, or black oil dip. Thanks to the expansion of the internet and TV, my aunt doesn't have to settle for the only live act touring through her town, which would undoubtedly be the Blue Collar Comedy Tour. She can see a famous dog trainer. America has delivered on its promise of pursuit of happiness. In fact... It plowed right past pursuit, right into Silver Platter. We stayed at a Motel 6 in a very unsavory part of Phoenix, and throughout the night there was shouting and tire peel-outs, and once someone even banged on our door. At least that's what my aunt said. I slept through it all. I wonder if during those more alarming moments through the night, my aunt thought, I'm no safer with my nephew than I would be with a baby. Good baby, bad security. We are at the Torch Theater, and despite committing myself to improv for the last eight years, this is the first time I've been in an improv theater outside of California or New York, and the first thing I'm struck by is how it feels like the comic book shop in my hometown. It's a feeling of ignored intensity. The proprietors and regulars are deeply passionate about what is housed inside, while the majority of the population just knows it as the place next to the place that used to be a radio shack. There's so much passion and joy packed into this small business space in the strip mall, and yet next door is a joyless H&R block that probably does three times the business. If only the patrons knew what the return on improv is. I'm not sure how much more to include about improv as this is not an improv book, but this tour is because of improv, and this is a book about obsessions, which improv is for me. At the very least, it feels necessary to make the grand statement that improvisation is the greatest thing that has ever happened to my creative life. It's also totally boring and uninteresting to anyone not absorbed in it. When I first came to Los Angeles, I fell in love with the UCB Theater and took everyone who came out to visit me to a show, and found myself in shock when they weren't just as floored as I was to see people being funny on the spot without scripts or a plan. I get it now, and it's not that improv has lost any of its allure for me, it's that I've accepted that everything is relative. Improv is not a universal, but for those that like it, it is our universe. Josh and I decide that I will teach the first lesson, then we will go to lunch, and Josh will teach the second. This will be our model for the entire trip. I will not go into the details of these lessons unless something interesting happens, which it won't. Otherwise, I leave you to assume these lessons on improv are as exciting as you find improv. It's all relative. I teach my first workshop, and I do so effectively and easily. It feels weird to boast about that. 
I've never been great at selling myself, and as this book expands with every word, few sentences feel as foreign as the ones where I talk about my strength in something. But I am trying to be better at being myself, and I can't do that if I willfully ignore my strengths. So there. I am a good teacher. And I should be. $70,000 will turn just about anyone into a decent anything. And that's how much I borrowed from the government to pay Loyola Marymount, one of the top-rated education universities in the country, to mold me into an effective educator. And not just any educator, a special educator. I am a special education teacher, or at least I was one. I suppose I still am, so long as I am educating in some capacity. I haven't taught in a classroom setting in almost a year, but I teach improv now, and while my students are not in special education, every technique I've implored to help some 20-something take their rudimentary fart joke and make it a colossal windbreaker is a special education tool. The misconception is that special education is for retards. But here's the thing. I've never taught a retard in my life. And as far as I'm concerned, there's never been a retard in the history of special education. Special education is a term used to describe a branch of education in which the students have identifiable learning challenges, ranging from auditory processing deficits to autism-like behaviors to being visually or hearing impaired. Down syndrome would classify as special education, as would attention or hyperactive disorders. But being retarded would not. The only retards are the people who think someone else is a retard because they're stunted in their ability to perceive individuals different from them as equal. Special education targets learning challenges and accommodates or adjusts for them. A small percentage of the population is innately equipped to learn through any means, whether it be auditory, visual, or kinesthetic. These people are geniuses. The rest of us have our learning strengths or learning challenges, and depending on the skill set of our teachers and schools, we may receive instruction in the modality that fits our learning style, or we may not. If we are unfortunate enough to go to a public school where the demand is so great that we are replaced in a classroom with 35 other individuals, it is unlikely that the person positioned in the front of the classroom has the time or aptitude to teach to 35 individuals with their own unique learning proclivities. And if we go to a private school with smaller class sizes, then we probably have the money and resources to compensate for any lack of educational variety. So often, money is the determining factor and being rich or poor can't make you a retard. So it's not a thing. So don't use the word, because it makes you look like an asshole. I mean, how'd you feel about me after I used it? Perhaps you're wondering if we all have learning challenges, then how come so many of us are educated with no help? To which I would say, most of us have help, even if that help is just having a parent who has the time to sit with us. Furthermore, the number of us who are actually educated is not that high. The educational bar has been lowered into the basement, and even then, a shit ton of us weasel our way through anyhow, only to rise to the ranks of bankers, politicians, and academics. The rest fail, and become meaningful contributors to society, instead of making boatloads of money. For lunch, we walked to Shake Shack, which two years ago would have been such a treat for me, but since we are living in the time of ubiquitous gratification, I've lived next to a Shake Shack for months and have eaten there a dozen times. When I first moved to L.A., I sort of became obsessed with this quest to try all the great cheeseburgers. Taking advantage of the previously mentioned abundance of L.A., I would drive all over the city trying different ones, ranking them, researching, and talking with others. I also gained an easy 20 pounds. A lot has happened in those eight years. For starters, I'd have to work to eat a bad burger. Not really, but most burgers in L.A. are very good. Food is very good right now, and so is TV, and rap music, and books. Even movies are making a comeback. And it's all at our fingertips. 
We are in the golden age of just about everything. Oh, everything except equality, social justice, immigration, and education. But those shortcomings aren't coming at the expense of our Grubhubs or Hulus, so we haven't exactly been moved beyond tossing some humanitarian breadcrumbs into the lake of social media. But I got news for you. Breadcrumbs aren't enough to feed a duck, let alone a country. Life has called on us less, and we still let it go to voicemail. For the record, the Shake Shack burger was the best burger I've been underwhelmed by. Sometimes I think our manifest destiny is so ingrained in us that it's not the perfect burger I want, but the quest to find one. It's not a sequel to Star Wars we want, it's the yearning for one. In 1995, I was 12. I, like a lot of budding teenagers, was attracted to and spent a lot of time thinking about women, specifically women who seemed particularly dialed into being attractive. The internet wasn't quite what it is today, and Playboy still ruled the roost, and its golden goose was Pamela Anderson. I don't recall my first introduction to her. It seems now like I always knew about her. I never watched Baywatch, but perhaps it was just that Baywatch was a thing. Pop culture used to be objective. Now it's subjective. What one might classify as popular might not even ping the radar for someone else. We should probably change it from popular culture to subjective culture. For most of my life, people sort of all knew about the same TV shows, movies, music, sports, and celebrities. So regardless, wherever I first encountered her, I quickly made her a staple of my daily daydreams and fantasies. It was an easy and smooth integration. She was attractive, naked in magazines, and I was thinking about sex a lot. At a sleepover once, some friends and I rented Barbed Wire, the action movie she starred in, because we had heard she appeared naked at some point. We were all very disappointed. The nudity is brief and the fun even briefer. Nevertheless, the pursuit to see her naked remained, and it seems weird to type this out, but the act of seeing her naked aided in my imagination of having sex with her, which is what I wanted even though I don't know that I ever directly said it to anyone, or even myself. And then a videotape of her having sex was released. And by released, I mean someone stole it from a safe in Pamela and Tommy's house and sold it to an adult video production company. It's pretty horrendous when you think about it. The 90s were rich with public dehumanizing. But I was 12 and I wasn't thinking about that. And I guess neither was the rest of the country. I was thinking about sex with Pamela Anderson, and I guess so was the rest of the country. And suddenly, mine and the country's deepest sexual fantasies came true as much as it ever realistically could. It was like rubbing a magic lamp until I came. There was no way I would ever actually have sex with Pamela Anderson. The obstacles were too many to name. She was older than me, and rich, and famous, and cool, and on and on, and on and on and on. So the idea that I could watch her have sex made me believe I could get whatever I wanted, which turned out not to be so good. I got my hands on the video and watched it. It was not great. I mean, it was still Pamela Anderson having sex, but it wasn't meant for me, or anyone except them, I assume. I could sort of sense it was a private moment. I mean, I still made use of it because I was a teenager, and teenagers are monsters, but it fell very short of the fantasy I had been constructing in my head, which makes sense. How could it, or anything we fantasize about, ever realistically equal the brain power we've spent on it? The more we think about wanting something, the more that something moves further out of reach because the expectations become too untenable. So even though it didn't complete my life, the tape of Pamela Anderson having sex did forever impact my life. I learned wanting something is often more powerful than having something. So be careful what you wish for, lest you get it, and then you have nothing left to wish for. Josh teaches his lesson, and then we chat with the proprietors for a few minutes before going back to the Airbnb. 
we both re-up on sleep. Remember, Josh didn't sleep well, and I, well, I like to nap. Then we go out to eat again. I could get used to this life on the road. Sleep, eat, goof, repeat. Josh is looking for romance on this trip, so he sits across from me swiping away on his phone. My generation has made it so you literally don't have to lift a finger for dating and casual sex. It's hard not to see this as the next step before intercourse with robots. That's not to say the dating from these apps can't be fruitful or loving, but I imagine it's only got to get easier. And what would be easier than falling in love online? Actually, being in love with online. I suppose people do that now with VR, POV, escorts, but the online part is still leagues behind its action-adventure counterparts. You can create a soldier who looks just like you and then go whoop Nazi ass in World War II, or dominate Peyton Manning in the Super Bowl. Seems like it's only a matter of time before we'll be customizing our avatars with our same faces, better bodies, and more generous genitalia. Then we'll undress our little sim and let Peyton Manning dominate us on a whole new field. Sure, people are looking for connections, but they can do that on Reddit. We're just going to strip down and outsource all the parts of being in a relationship to different aspects of the digital age. I fuck my robot, go to message boards to talk Game of Thrones, and take a vacation with my Instagram followers. Life has never asked less of us. Our first live show starts with us sitting in on the Torch Theater's popular storytelling improv show. And while I'm listening to the monologist tell a story about meeting her last boyfriend in a diner, I realize that I'm hundreds of miles from home doing improv with strangers in front of strangers. It's easy enough because there's no script, but it's also ridiculous because there is no script. It's not like we're Hamilton. We're not even Spider-Man turn out the dark. We're two idiots making each other laugh and we somehow got enough people to listen to us. We can travel the country. Not enough to make it profitable, but enough that people will volunteer their free time to listen to us. It's an amazing thing, and while I'm thinking about this, I forget to take part in the show I came out for, effectively making this a seven-hour trip to watch a show. Life asked for too much. I'm granted an appeal. We record our live episode of our podcast, our second of the tour, but our first from the road, and it's a blast. We test the mics with what will be our running bit for the trip. Shortly before I left for this trip, during my dad's visit for my grandpa's memorial service, my dad fell on the beach and dropped his phone in the beach. Notice I didn't say sand. That's because he marvelously got it in both the sand and the ocean. So before every live show, we test the mics with a variation of this incident as a tongue twister. My papa propelled his palm pilot off the pier. My daddy dropped his device in a divot. My father fell on his phone. My daddy dons the Donald's dressings. This one refers to my dad's Trump attire. My dad, funnily enough, has a history with beach and phone calamity. It's funny because he doesn't spend a lot of time on either of them. But once he and I were at the beach and two young couples came up and asked if he would take their photo. I took this personal because I was much closer to their age and couldn't figure out why they would ask him and not me. Don't we all gravitate towards generational proximity? Especially when it's regarding technology. Well, it would prove to be a catastrophic error on their part. It took my dad so long to figure out how to operate the camera function on the phone that while the couples were posing with their backs to the ocean, a wave snuck up behind them and splashed against one of the dude's calves. It startled him and he flinched, which knocked his girlfriend's purse onto the ground, just in time for another small wave to break right into her purse, drowning her phone in glasses. She yells at him and he yells back at her. They collect their phone before my dad ever snapped a pic. So while they will have nothing to remember that moment by, I most certainly will never forget it. Our first guests that host us are Jackie and Jose, the founders and proprietors of the Torch Theater. 
Jose took the workshop, and it's amazing that I could have anything to teach someone who owns and operates a small business. That's leagues above where I'm at. But I guess while he was busy investing in his future, I was learning how to heighten a second beat of an improv scene by taking the character to work home play. I guess you could say Jose and I both work and live in a home and play. But only one of us works as a chatty astronaut who at home is also chatty. And for play, he's on the golf course being tight-lipped because you have to stay ahead of the audience. Jackie tells us a story about a DUI and the infamous Arizona Sheriff Joe who mandated tent prisons, outdoor tarp-covered confinement for prisoners. Jose tells us about a near-death experience as a kid that put him in the hospital and he missed out on the NBA All-Star game. If you want the full stories, I will point you in the podcast direction because A, they're not my stories to tell, and B, we could use the listeners. One thing I like most about our podcast is the structured socializing. There's storytelling up top where I get to ask questions, then we have about 20 minutes of goofing around time, then another story, and then more goofing around, and then we go home. It's turned me into a very compartmentalized fun guy. Fun guy should probably be in quotes. One of my most pressing issues, and the reason I don't go to parties often, is my struggle to get out of a conversation, or to join one. When I smoke cigarettes, that was my tool. I'd join or leave conversations by either going for a smoke or finishing up a smoke. But since I stopped smoking, I float through a party like one of those bobbers in the ocean, bumping into occasional schools of fishes or two dudes lost out at sea talking about representation. When I tell people this, they advise to implore the excuse of having to use the bathroom or getting another drink, and they insist this is universal and widely accepted. But if it's universal, then it's no better than just saying, I'm tired of talking about this subject and or to you. People are always going to the bathroom and getting another drink when I'm talking to them, and I took them at their word. But now I know the code. I'm wondering, are people peeing with more regularity when talking with me? Is there a horde of people in the bathroom hiding from me? When I legit go to the bathroom, are people wondering why I lost interest? This code is hurtful and confusing. We should all just wear name tags, but instead of our names, it should list the three last opinions we've had, and you just approach the people whose opinions interest you, and then you go down the list, dissecting each attractive opinion at length, and then you say, I guess that covers it, and then you move on. After the show, Jackie takes us to the local bar for a couple of beers. We talk about the improv scene, and she says how she took improv classes in other cities before moving to Phoenix to start the Torch Theater. She seems to be pursuing her manifest destiny with a spirit I envy. She's living her dream even in 100 degree heat. And I guess that's the point. Living your dreams isn't about meeting your expectations. It's asking from life as much as it asks from you. Our dreams aren't realistic, but that doesn't mean we can't live some version of them. After all, no one dreams of going through a breakup and losing a loved one and then riding a train to play make-believe with strangers. When we're kids, we all dream of being on SNL or owning a home in the country or living in a major metropolitan city and making major metropolitan money. But those dreams come with compromises and mortgages and public shaming all the same. And what kid is going to dream realistically? I mean, they should. It would make life more palatable. But kids are idealistic idiots. And that's fine. It's the only time in life when you get to be one and be happy. Unless, of course, you're Adam Sandler, 2 Chains, or... Huh. I was trying to think of a woman who fits the criteria, but maybe between gender inequality and level-headedness, idealism and idiocy don't stray far from male pattern baldness. After a pitcher of beer, Jackie brings us to our Airbnb, and I crash hard for the third time in a day. I am exhausted. It takes a lot of work to distract myself from heartache although the heartache probably would have wiped me out just the same, so it's hard to say what the culprit of this fatigue is. 
Josh elects to walk across the street to a bar and try his hand at some local romance. I fold out the couch and think about how, in setting my sights on the future, I am closer to a life as a comedian and further from a life with companionship. So while Josh goes out to ask more from life, I wonder if I have asked too much or gotten exactly what I wanted.